Oops. Okay, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's recording. Okay. Omagyana tinirandasya gyananjana shalakaya chakshurun yritam yena tasmai shri gurve Narayanam namaskritya naram chayva narotamam devim sarasvati vyasam tato jayam dirayat pancha kalpa tarubhyascha kripa sindhu bhaivacha patitanam bhavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namo namah. Okay, hi guys, welcome to the class. We are uh, in the, well actually nearing the end of chapter two. Um, of the first canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, um, wherein uh, we start to get the, the answers to the questions that, that the sages asked in the previous, um, previous chapter in chapter one, Shonaka Rishi um, and the assembled Munis asked some questions to Sutta Goswami. Um, they presented six questions and I think two, two, um, Two or three of them are being answered here. Well, actually, maybe the third one more near the end, but they asked them, what's the ultimate welfare for all humanity? And what's the essence of, of the sadhanas uh, presented in the Shastra? So we, we went over verses that answered that, these seminal verses. Um, he asked, what was the purpose of Krishna's appearance from the womb of Devaki? Um, that would be the third question. The fourth question was, what are the magnanimous acts of Krishna, the leelas of Krishna? Um, the question number five was what, what were the avatars of Krishna? Um, and that's, that's where we're just kind of uh, segueing into uh, the, the verses, the last verses from yes, uh, last week's class and then um, the verses that are coming up here to the end of the chapter and going into the third chapter. So that, that answers the questions are of um, what are the avatars of Krishna? And then the sixth question was, um, when Krishna disappears from the world, where has Dharma taken shelter? So these are the six questions that were at, at, um, answered in the, asked, sorry, in the first, first chapter. And basically the, the Bhagavatam is, a, is an answer to these, these six questions. From all these six questions, it can be ascertained um, just by looking at them. More from three, four, five, and six that Shonaka Rishi um, is very much interested in Krishna because he's asking what was the purpose of Krishna's appearance? What are the magnanimous acts of Krishna? What are the avatars of Krishna? And what happens when Krishna disappears? And then um, by inference, the first two questions, what's the ultimate welfare? We find that it's, it's um, Dharma to Krishna. So, so from the first six questions, we can see very much that um, Shonaka Rishi is very interested in Krishna. Um, and then coming into the second chapter here, Sutta Goswami, um, he first, he first, um, his first, the first verse that he speaks is actually, um, is on, he, he honors the questions that the sages asked. And then in, uh, verse, verse five, he, he honors, honors those questions by glorifying them. It's a beautiful verse. Munaya saru pristoham bir loka mangalam yatkata krishna samprashno yanatma suprasiditi. So in the first verse he honored them, and then second in this fifth verse he 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 honors the questions by glorifying them. He says, "Munoya um, sadhu prishtoham." So he says, "Sadhu, the, these questions are sadhu. They're they're very good. Sadhu means kind of like it can mean like bravo, and 
you know, why is he saying that uh, bravo to these questions? Because loka mangalam, they're auspicious for the whole world. Uh, you know, kind of leading into the idea that the question, um, the question can give ultimate welfare. And that's kind of an indirect way, I guess, of, of kind of answering these, the first two questions. Um, so, so it's yeah, an indirect way of answering these questions, these first questions. And why? Yeah, kutta Krishna samprashno because the, the, the questions are about Krishna and yenatma supersediti. Um, this type of question itself gives satisfactions. So it gives satisfaction. And this was the, the first kind of, first second question of the, of the sages was, you know, how to get this supersediti. So it, it's, I'm just going back to this verse for, for a second because it's, it's quite nice, but Prabhupada's purport um, it's it's quite nice. It's actually about how the whole world is a series of questions, question and answers. And I think he he talks about uh, in the morning the birds in the nest become busy with questions and answers, and in the evening also the same birds come back again busy with questions and answers. The human being, unless he is fast at sleep, is busy with questions and answers. So it's a nice it's a nice purport, and it's about how the whole world is basically a series of questions and answers. The birds are asking, you know, where are the worms? Um, the cats are meowing, you know, who's in heat? I'm in heat. Who's in heat? The humans too are asking asking questions. Our humans ask a variety of different questions. Most of them tend to be. Um, they, they tend to be, I guess, a little bit lower on the scale of things. Humans tend, you know, are, are, we're often interested in like, who won the game, you know, or what's Beyonce wearing to the, to the, to the awards? These types of questions are, are very uh, common. You see them all over the place. Or, you know, what happens in the next season of America's Got Talent or whatever. So the questions in general people have are, are not, you know, they're not very advanced. They're not kind of these, um, you know, existential questions that we're finding here um, in, in the beginning here. Um, but they are getting knowledge from these, you know, from these questions, but it's not, not the type of knowledge um, that the, the Moonies and the sages here are interested in because it's not the type of knowledge that can really, um, really transform uh, the self or soften the heart. You know, the, so, so there's kind of knowledge of the world and, and what's going on in it and it might might provide some some um, pleasure satisfaction for for some time but the, these types of questions don't give the type of knowledge that really um, can transform oneself um, but you know but questions about Krishna on the other hand um, is it's a, a knowledge that can purify the heart and we, we heard about that um, in the in the the, the the verses that describe this intensification of, of faith and how it, it purifies the heart and leads one to, to Bhav and Prem. So questions about Krishna are different. Uh, they do give knowledge that change, changes the heart. And, and they can, the words that are used, yenatma uh, supersediti, they can actually give satisfaction. So pure bhakti is the way to achieve this. Um, the ultimate welfare is pure bhakti. This is what they're asking about here, loka mangalam. Um, and uh, then, then after these verses, it, just to catch up to where we were, it goes through um, describing what pure bhakti is and then basically how pure bhakti, um, there's my kitty cat on the window. Uh, basically how pure bhakti um, blossoms from shraddha to prema. 
So we have that description here and that the root cause of, of bhakti is association with the, the, the devotees. Um, and it, it's interesting because there's this verse, uh, this nice verse, Krishna bhakti janma mula haya sadhu sangha, Krishna prema janmete tenho punya, uh, puna mukha anga, that, that um, the root cause of bhakti is association with the, the devotees. One gets the seed of faith from that. But even when Krishna prema um, awakens, association with the devotees is still an integral part. We hear, we know this famous verse from um, the Chaitanya Charitamrita, Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra Kai, Lava Matra Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Siddhi Hai, that just a moment's association um, with the devotee, uh, you know, gives all perfection. But I think the verse means when you when you kind of like look at it in relation to this other verse, Krishna Bhakta Janman and Krishna Prema Jan, it means that, that um, yes, a moment, it, all it takes is a moment's association to get the seed of Bhakti, but it's not in general, I suppose anything's possible in it, but it's not so much that you just have one second of association with a devotee and then it's all, um, you know, there's no more need for that. That's what the verse is saying is that although it just takes a second, um, even uh, association with devotees is even carried on, um, you know, all, all the way up up into frame. So how, then this, how this develops is described, like I said, the condensation of of, of faith into the blossoming of prema and um the last verse the last verses were that we went through um were they were really for mention for mentioning that you know bhakti is really just for 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 bhagavan for the supreme lord for krishna um where are we here so so um the, they, that's what they were mentioning, that it was really for the Supreme Lord, that, that it's not this bhakti that has been described and, and what happens to it as it's blossom is not really meant for, for anybody else besides Krishna or Bhagavan. Um, and we see some comparison of the, the, the guna avatars and, and uh, we'll get to the verses today that kind of like um, differentiate even, even more between uh, who, who should be the object of bhakti because, you know, Bhakti is a very, um, it's a very generous word. We see it a lot even today's, today's um, milieu, like here in Samara, there's all kinds of kind of, there's yoga schools and a lot of these kind of um, beach um, traveling hippies kind of a devotion and bhakti, the word bhakti is actually very, um, it's a very popular word. It's thrown around a lot. And people have different ideas of, of what it means. And I think the Bhagavatam, what the Bhagavatam is doing right here is refining uh, what bhakti really means. It did it in, in terms of its definition of what, what it is, what it's not. And, and now it's kind of uh, refining it in relation to what the object of bhakti is. Because people think, you know, bhakti could mean, um, and I've heard Gumaraj talk about this when he's kind of like gone and studied modern yoga practitioners or modern uh, um, non-dualist writings and stuff like that, where sometimes maybe they miss the, miss the point. I know he talks about how sometimes they miss the point of what brahmacharya really means or, or this idea of bhakti, like, like there's this bhakti fest, for example, is a big um, festival that's very popular now. And I'm sure it has a lot of um, good qualities and good effects from it, but people have this idea that devotion um, you know, devotion to to a co to social justice, for example, which again is not a bad thing, but it's not what the Bhagavatam is talking about here. 
um, here, you know, it, it's it's uh, mentioned several times that that this leads to to liberation. This type of devotion, devotion to things like social justice, although it's great, it's still within the modes of of nature, and it doesn't bring one out in the same way. Um, so people think of devotion; they often they 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 talk about it in relation to uh, the family, uh, devotion to humanity, social justice, devotion to one's uh, you know one's exercise, yoga practice, devotion to one's dog or whatever. But the Bhagavatam is clarifying here in these verses that we're about to read um, which forms are are the object of bhakti. So it, they uh, talked about the, the guna and the guna avatars um, and gave an example and drew out the focus that uh, that Vishnu was different than than Shiva and Brahma and that he was the one. Uh, the, the object of where one's bhakti should be focused. Um, it's the verse nine. Okay. So we get to verse 26 here um, and I'll read it. We went over it just at the end of the last class, but I thought uh, there's more that can be said. So we'll, we'll read this. Mumukshabo gorarupam hitva bhutta patinata narayana kalashanta bhajantihi anasu yalaha. So Prabhupada translates it here. Those who are those who are serious about liberation are cert certainly non-envious, and they respect all. They reject the horrible and ghastly forms of the demigods and worship the worship only the all blissful forms and plenary portions of Lord Vishnu. So. Um, the Bhagavatam here is telling us again, which re refining again, which forms are the objects of bhakti. And here it says Narayana Kala. So Prabhupada translates that as the all blissful forms and plenary portions of Lord Vishnu. Um, so it, it's, it means, well, plenary portions and the different forms. So Vishnu has very many different forms. When Rupa Goswami is defining, giving his definition of pure bhakti, he says Anukulyena. Krishna Anushilanam and in the, in the, in the purports there by Jiva Goswami, perhaps, or I'm not sure if it's Jiva Goswami or Vishwana Chakravarti, I can't remember, but they talk about it as this ongoing culture, internal and external, of bhakti towards the Lord, favorable bhakti, favorable service towards the Lord, um, towards Krishna, but it also includes his expansion forms and um, others related to him. They make that point. So it's Krishna, but it, it also includes these. Um, these all blissful forms and plenary portions that Prabhupada is talking about here. And it also includes actually his devotees and the guru. So they make that point there. So they're differentiating between the demigods, the forefathers and other living beings in this verse. Well, most actually that's the next verse. This verse, they're mostly uh, just differentiating between uh, the demigods and the forms of Lord Vishnu. Um, these verses, I guess from a verse verse about 23 to, to the next verse, verse 27, they're making the contrast uh, first with the guna avatars that we went through and now with other objects of worship that are quite popular in the, in the Vedic world, I guess, um, that, uh, you know, other objects of worship um, that's saying that bhakti is really for, for Bhagavatam Adhoksajam, it said in this previous verse, Bhagavatam Adhoksajam, it's really for, um, for Adhoksaja. 
And why? Because Satvam Vishudam, that's what we, we spoke about before, because his forms are made of pure existence. So Bhakti is also uh, uh, an aspect of the, the internal energy in, in um, this, this uh, Vasudeva platform that we talked about, Satvam Vishudham. Um, and being an aspect of the internal energy, it only has as its object, which is the point that's being made here, um, something that is of the, of the same nature. So bhakti being transcendental, the object of bhakti is also transcendental and, and not these, um, um, the demigods or the forefathers or humanity, whatever is being listed in these verses. Um, so it's not, they're not material, these material things, but, but a transcendental thing. And this verse is also talking about uh, those desirous of liberation. Um, uh, that it refers to, in the previous verse, it referred to those who are desiring, oh no, sorry, it's in this verse, mumukshava, it says, those who are desiring of liberation, right, yeah, mumukshava, those who are desirous of liberation um, will be, will be rejecting these forms because these forms are still tied up within the mesh um, of the gunas. And it's only um, Krishna who is, or, or these Shuddha forms, these Vishnu forms, that is, that are able to uh, pull one out of those things. Prabhupada makes this nice point here. I'll just read from the purport. He says that Vishnu is called Muktipada. Therefore, Vishnu is called Muktipada, or the personality of Godhead who can blow, bestow upon us Mukti, liberation, and none else. The demigods, being like other living entities in the material world, are all liquidated at the time of annihilation of the material structure. They are themselves unable to get liberation. What to speak of giving liberation to their devotees? The demigods can award the worshippers some tem temporary benefits only and not the ultimate one. So, um, so I guess um, the, the verse is just describing those desiring liberation, like I mentioned, Mukshava, um, that these type of people follow the Munis and direct their worship towards the forms of Shudasattva and give up all the forms of the demigods here, Hitva Bhuta Patin. So Mukshava Goraru, Hitva Bhuta Patin, especially these Gora Rupam, these, um, uh, forms of the demigods that can be very ghastly. I think last class I mentioned that story about Srila Sridhar Maharaj um, having, beginning a debate with a shakta and asking her to describe um, describe the form of Kali versus kind of the, the, the form of Krishna to make that point. Um, what comes to my mind, I don't know if you guys ever have ever seen um, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. That was one of my first introductions, I suppose, to well, Prabhupada gives a list here of some of these, um, some of these gora rupam, these ghastly forms, Kala Bhairava, Smashaha Bhairava, Shani Mahakali, Chandika. So these kind of, these gora rupam, these ghastly forms where, um, you know, to get close to them, one's liable to get cut or, you know, they're carrying all these sharp weapons and, and in, in kind of, uh, scary places and whatnot. So um, it reminds me of this Indiana Jones movie, which is probably a terrible representation, but um, there's some, some Kali worshipers in there who it's, it's very dark drinking blood from skulls and stuff. I don't know, I was young when I saw the movie, so it made an impression on me. 
but that, that, that's what's being spoken of here. Hippa, Bhuta, Patin, the demigods, especially Gora, Rupam, these the ghastly forms. Um, so the demigods, what Prabhupada is saying here is that it means that the, the forms, they're composed of the gunas of nature. And our tendency is to per, you know, project our affection to objects of this world, actually, um, because they're easily perceptible. So, um, you know, when we hear about uh, uh, Bhagavatam Adhoksajam, Adhoksajam, you know, is, is very much kind of transcendental and beyond the senses. So it's hard to, you know, to just kind of, he's not easily perceptible. So it's, it's, it's natural that in a sense, it would be harder to put one's faith in, in that. Whereas um, the forms that are composed of the, the gunas of material nature and, and composed of the things that we want, um, some of those are listed in the next verses. Uh, it's kind of, in a sense, natural that we would, we would do that. Um, it's hard to place one's affection in, in something that's not perceivable that one has to take uh, solely on faith, especially when we see that through worship of the demigods, um, the that people's desires are fulfilled very quickly. Whereas in the worship of Adhoksaja, one's desires are not fulfilled. They're usually thwarted, perhaps for the higher good, but still. So the idea, you know, is that that you end up going where you project your attention. So, so uh, you know, one wants to to avoid that. And again, I just like to point out here, the devotees have described as non-envious. So um, what it means in a sense, last time I think I spoke about it, uh, the, the devotees being non-envious, it's mentioned in the first verse two of the Bhagavatam, Nirmatsaranam Satam, describing the devotees. But it, in this verse here, it means that the devotees are not, um, you know, if somebody wants to worship the, the demigods, the devotees are not angry at them for that, or the devotees are not, uh, envy envious of them you know that's fine you 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 worship where you have faith and um you know the the results of that will come um you know you worship worship the animals worship the forefathers worship the earth you know whatever um Gumash makes a really nice point in, in i mean obviously the devotees want to give people the you know the highest object but certainly they're not envious if someone is worshiping somebody other than krishna Gumash makes a really nice you know a nice point in this regard when he says that um that the object of service becomes refined in time and i, I thought this was a, just a really a really wonderful and generous point the idea is that gumaraj says you know it's just to just start giving somewhere um so you know just start this this pro process of giving or worship um and in time the this the worship itself the act of giving itself um purifies one and refines one and so then the object becomes more and more refined and uh, you know with the idea leading ultimately up to krishna who is you know the the perfect object of worship so we see that um Gumaraj encourages that um i i remember uh an event when i was living at odaria many moons ago, it, I, there was some small drama or something. There was a devotee who was um, kind of new and, and associating with some some other devotees. And um, I think it was a Kaddishi or something like that. And and some vegans had prepared these really nice, really nice um, 
preparations and the devotee was really enthused that you know these these they were i think i guess they were non-devotees had prepared these really nice vegan preparations and uh, the other devotees responded in some kind of very negative way saying well you know it's vegan but but in fact they're just eating sin or they're just eating that because it's a kadashi and, and the guy was really turned off because he had you know even though it was grains and it was a kadashi um he saw it as a as a nice act and gumrash uh, I remember, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he basically commented like, you know, the, the act of sacrifice and the act of giving was very present in these people's, you know, um, in these people's offering, even though it was done with grains, it was done improperly, but that their heart was in the right place or vegans in general, you know, perhaps the, the heart is in the right place because it's, they're trying to reduce suffering. They're trying to serve in a sense um, so the devotees generally are, are, should not criticize or be envious of those types of people, even if perhaps from our perspective, the, um, their, their focus is not the same. So, you know, wherever the devotees see people giving, they should be giving or serving. They should be happy and not envious. But the Bhagavatam nevertheless is making very clear here that the object of bhakti is Krishna. Um, so let's, we can move on to... Text 27. Rajatama prakrita yaha sama shila bhajanti vai pitrir bhuta prajeshadin shri yaishvarya prajeshavaha. Those who are in the modes of passion and ignorance worship the forefathers, other living beings, and the demigods who are in charge of cosmic activities. For they are urged by a desire to be materially benefited with women, wealth, power, and this aristocratic birth. So in this verse, we, we see that people are, they're worshiping the forefathers, other living beings, um, such as the, such as their forefathers or some powerful manifest, the demigods. Um, and these, these fall within the modes of passion of ignorance. So what we're seeing in this verse is the divisions of faith, similar to how it's described in the Gita people, the, the divisions of faith, according to the gunas that is described later on in the Gita. Um, those who are in Tamagun worship ghosts and those in Rajagun worship the demons, those in, in Sattvagun worship the demigods. Um, in the previous purport, he had made the comment that the, um, well, not, not, was it the previous purport? Yeah, in the previous purport, Prabhupada made the comment that that the Lord expands himself into two categories. He calls them the integrated plenary portions and the separated parts and parcels. Um, sometimes we hear it called svamsa and vivinamsa. Um, or like we had discussed, Vishwanath had described it um, in the last class I was speaking. Uh, he, he spoke of the special position of Lord Shiva um, and Lord Vishnu because they're Ishwar Chaitanya or um, as opposed to Jiva Chaitanya. So the parts and parcels are, the idea is that the parts and parcels, the, ish, uh, the sorry, the Jiva Chaitanya, the dependent consciousness, um, they're meant for service to the whole. And so when one takes the, the part, which is meant for service to the whole and separates it out and turns it into an object of worship, um, you know, they are, they are not proper objects in, for devotion in and of itself, in, in and of its, of themselves, actually, they're meant, you know, to be focused to to be turned 
and focus towards the center. So what, when one takes one of these parts and parcels or, or um, dependent consciousness and, and separates them out and makes them the object of, of conscious, uh, sorry, the object of, of bhakti, then what happens is they're really off, sep off, off, off center. And in a sense, this is really what idolatry is. Um, idolatry is not so much the, you know, the worship of the Arch of Igraha. People see it that way, you're worshiping a statue. But what real idolatry is, is, is when one takes a part and alienates it from the whole and, 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 and turns it into an object of worship. Um, and what the, the verse here is saying is that, that people tend to choose objects of worship that are in the same mode, of, mode as them, um, be it Rajas, Thomas, or Sattva. And, and it's explained a little bit differently in the Gita in terms of the examples, but the idea is the same. So the idea is, of, you know, we hear, uh, what's that saying? Birds of a feather flock together. So if one is in, in Tamagun, one will, will um, tend to choose objects of worship that are in that mode. Um, and they do this because they preside over the things that people want. Like I mentioned, people want women or wealth or power, aristocratic birth. Um, these are the things that people want. And these are the things mentioned in the verse that they will get. So those in Tamagun, like I said, they'll worship Tamasic things. Those in Rajagun will worship um, um, the demigods. I mean, in today's world, maybe outside of this kind of Vedic context, you can see kind of the same thing where the worship of celebrity, especially is very popular now, or the worship of sports figures, um, powerful politicians. Um, you know, the, the, uh, there was this Argentinian football player who I, I kind of forgot about him, but he passed away like not so long ago, probably within six months. I forget what his name is. You know, it's, huh? Maratona, I for Maradona, yeah, Maradona, and and uh, Padmanamaras was was um, he mentioned him. I couldn't think of what he was surprised that I didn't know him, but then I I remembered who he was because I saw his funeral and Padmanamaras was talking about how this man had just been because of his abilities in soccer and and the way he won a certain game and the whole the political situation all around it. This man had truly been elevated to to the position of a demigod, um, like he even had you know, they had churches dedicated to him and stuff. Um, so we see that and we see that with other, you know, other celebrities, Beyonce is referred to as a goddess and um, um, things like that. So it, it, there's a Vedic context, but it's, it's pretty easy to see this in, in a modern con context, uh, context as well. And, you know, people worship Beyonce, for example, because they want what she has. Um, you know, she's beautiful and successful and covered in diamonds. And this is what people want, this fame and beauty. So um, we see that. It's a little bit strange for Westerners, I would say, to, you know, this talk of demigods, demigods. It's because, you know, perhaps we didn't kind of grow up with it in the same way that someone in, in um, you know, a Hindu family would have. Um, so it's, in a sense, you know, it's a little bit easier for Western devotees to kind of like, yeah, the demigods, I mean, what does, <laughs> you know, what does that mean? It seems like a, a bit of a strange thing, um, you know, so it's or some, not something that's very hard to give up. Um, the Abrahamic faiths tended to try and uh, squash these, these ideas, these demigods, these demigods um, very early on, but they got absorbed somehow in, in different parts, but you see it in pagan religions, you know, like, 
um, the Greek gods. You have uh, all sort. I mean, they're they're all sorts of demigods. Basically, Zeus is like Indra. I mean, the correspondences are there: Greek gods, Norse gods, it, the Egyptian gods. All these kind of demigods are found, you know, in, all over the place. So it's actually not just some kind of. Uh, it's not really just a particular thing about Hinduism. It, it's found quite all over. And Vaishnavism in that sense is really, it's it's really a nice kind of synthesis, I, I think of this like pantheist, uh, um, yeah, pantheist worldview. I'm, I was getting confused between pantheist and panentheist, but no pantheist worldview of all these different gods um, and the monotheistic worldview, um, you know, like dev, in, 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 in Vaishnavism, demigods are given all respect, but they're seen as, as derived from or dependent or aspects of the supreme um, God, the supreme Purusha. Um, there, as we'll, I'll, I'll bring up the point a little bit later in the other verses, but they, they, they're seen as like kind of the, the, the limbs of, of the body of God in relation to the world. They oversee the movements of nature, um, et cetera. Um, and it actually makes for a really nice uh, kind of magical worldview, I would say, where, where, um, humans are, are only kind of like a step on the ladder of being and the environment is alive and personified. Um, it fosters respect for the environment, uh, respect for, for um, other living beings. Um, the environment is alive and it's personified. So it's, it's harder to, to abuse something when you, it's harder to pollute the water when you see it as Varuna, a, a person. Um, so it makes for an environment, or environmentally conscious worldview. Um, and that's all kind of subsumed within a, a transcendental, um, uh, you know, uh, like a Vedanta. So it's, it's, you know, sometimes when I've kind of like tried to look into like uh, these kind of pagan religions and Wiccan religions and stuff, there's something very attractive about it. And it's, I think it's that part, but there also to me at least feels like there's something missing too. And I think that's the, the kind of um, the the theist or or theistic Vedanta side. So, um, so I think Vaishnavism is a very nice synthesis of these types of things. The Abrahamic face when they remove that totally. I mean, you see it a little bit in the uh, kind of like um, Mediterranean Catholic world and stuff, or or perhaps uh, the Catholic world in general. You know, it's it's a little bit more attractive. But when you've got this kind of stark stark monotheism, it's a little it's kind of a little um, dry, unmagical. But the Bhagavatam is making clear uh, here, um, as it also does in the, the Gita's seventh chapter. I've got that right here, because I'll read a couple of verses from it, uh, that, that ultimately, um, ultimately worship for those desiring liberation, what to speak of Prem, Bob and Prem should be for, for these Spamsa forms that I mentioned, this, these Ishwar Chaitanya forms, the, the, the Shuddha Sattva forms, not for the separated forms, because um, those ultimately are just uh, parts and parcels, individual souls. And, um, you know, this is, in a sense, this is what idol worship really means. Demigods, I think demi does, it means half, but it, it also means, I think, it just means that they, they resemble God in a sense because they have the, these like powerful attributes that, that we know God to have. Um, but um, anyhow, as Krishna is also free from envy, like, like 
the verse, um, the previous verse mentioned about the devotees, um, he allows people to worship as they choose. Ultimately, he says he gives them the, the faith. Um, and ultimately, it's, it is him through the agency of the demigods that, that people fulfill their desires. He calls them less intelligent in the Gita. Um, so it's, uh, it sounds a little harsh, but it's just, it's not as an insult. It's just because they, they'll never be able to keep the things that they're after which they're chasing. So he, he calls them less intelligent in that sense, not as not to be mean, not to be mean, I don't think. I'll just read the verses here from chapter seven because because those whose intelligence have been stolen by various desires take refuge in other gods, impelled by their own natures, they engage in various re religious rituals. Whoever desires to faithfully worship a particular form, whichever one it is, I grant him the necessary conviction to do so. A person endowed with this faith, desiring to worship that form, and surely he attains the fulfillment of his desires only because of me. However, the results of these persons of meager intellect are perishable. Those who worship the gods attain the gods, but my devotees attain me. So in the Bhagavatam, he's a little bit more forward, I would say, about stopping this worship. We see, you know, in relation to Indra and, the, and Govardhan Leela, you know, he's a little bit more, more forward about no worship of the demigods, but that's that's another story. So we'll we'll put that aside. And I'll just come to verse 28 and 29 um, to kind of finish up this this chapter. This these verses are a glorification um, of Vasudev, uh, a description of the Shudasattva forms, the ones that are worthy of worship. So now we're going to get some some information about those forms that are worthy of worship. These verses here are really nice for, for chanting. Um, I, I, they're very Vedic, I guess. I don't know if it's Vedic or whatnot, but they're they're very suitable for kind of chanting and repetition. Um, they show how, how Vasudeva is at the foundation or, or he's the goal of all the paths that, that are found in Veda or the processes um, or, or that, or, or that um, they're only successful with some participation of Vasudeva. Um, you know, some participation from him in the path. So I'll read the verse, these two verses. Vasudeva para Veda, Vasudeva para Maka, Vasudeva para Yoga, Vasudeva para Kriya, Vasudeva param Gyanam, Vasudeva param Tapa, Vasudeva paro Dharmo, Vasudeva para Gati. So in the revealed scriptures, the ultimate object of knowledge is Sri Krishna, the personality of Godhead. The purpose of performing sacrifice is to please him. Yoga is for realizing him. All fruitive activities are ultimately rewarded by him only. He is supreme knowledge and all severe austerities are perform performed to know him. Religion is rendering loving service unto him. He is the supreme goal of life. So just before, um, just before that section that I read from the Gita, um, about the, the, you know, worshiping the demigods and whatnot. There's this, uh, the famous verse, Vasudeva Savarmi, Vasudeva Savarmiti Sa Mahatma Sudurlaba, that after realizing all these things, the great souls come to see that Vasudeva is everything. After many births, the person possessing self-knowledge surrenders unto me, Vasudeva, realizing um, that Vasudeva is everything. And such a soul is very, very, is very rare. So, in the Gita, we find some some similar ideas. There's this realization, glorifying uh, glorification of Vasudev. 
he makes the point that the gunas are are a tangled mess and and very difficult to to go beyond. He says, "Daiva hi esha guna mai mama maya durataya." Then the wise see Vasudeva and everything as the goal of the verse that I quoted there. And then he goes on um, to those that worship within the modes, um, and and what a shame it is <laughs> because all the results are perishable. So in in the Gita, it, it starts it starts with Vasudeva Samaviti, and then it it, it explains. What the what the results of worshiping the demigods are, and and, ex, and before it explains you know kind of about what Vasudev is, and in the Bhagavatam it's in here it it describes kind of like what the results of worshiping the devatas are, and then here it's giving the description of Vasudev. So this word Vasudev we hear it repeated at the uh, beginning of each pada, each line of this eight times here in these two verses Vasudeva Paraveda Vasudeva Paramaka. So Vasudev, there's probably a lot of Sanskrit way, meanings that one can derive from it. Um, but the one that that uh, stuck in my head the most was Vasudev. Vasu meaning like 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 Vasa, like like Madhuvan Vasis. We say that all the time. Uh, Vasi is as a person who resides. So the idea with Vasudev is that he resides everywhere in all things, and that all things reside in him. Like Narayana, like the word, like the name Narayana, but so Vasu means to reside, um, and it also means to veil or cover. So, uh, like the sun with its rays, he he's covering the whole universe. And Deva means uh, one who sports or plays, or one who shines. This this playful kind of god. Um, so this word Vasudev, but on a sweeter level, of course, Vasudev particularly means to the devotees, at least, the divine son of Devaki. Uh, and Vasudev with a short A, um, and what this means, it, and and it's it's a profound thing, is that that um, this is that that not only does he pervade all things, and all things reside in him, and he resides in all things, but that that um, that he also has a father. That's what this this name refers to. You see it in the very beginning when Prabhupada starts his commentaries, it means the son of Vasudev. So it means so it means that God has a father, God has Vatsalya Ras and all the implications of this. Um, so this is the 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 kind of sweeter side of that word Vasudev. Um, that he's the only real object of, of worship is is proclaimed here over and over. Um, that Vasudev is everything. So, Vasudev para Veda, of the revealed scripture, the Veda, Vasudev is the ultimate object of knowledge. That's Bhagavad Gita, basically, 1515. I alone am to be known by the Veda. Indeed, I am the compiler of the Vedanta and the knower of the Veda as well. So, Gumarsh often makes a point that all the, although the Veda appears to deal with many subjects, um, many purposes, there's an underlying unity that ultimately teaches about liberation and, and in its furthest extent, love of God um, with one object of knowledge, Krishna. It, the, the Vedas give this Sambandha Tattva, Abhideya Tattva, and Prayojan Tattva. Um, Gumarsh speaks of the Vedanta as the first attempt to show the concordance of all these ideas that are found in the Vedic literature and the Upanishads. Um, and here, Krishna, uh, well, in the Gita, Krishna says he's the compiler of the Veda, I guess, as, as Vyasadeva. Um, 
and uh, as Vyasadeva wrote the Vedanta Sutra. So he's the knower, um, knower of the Veda also. We see that because he explains it very clearly to Arjun on the battlefield. And the idea too is that the Veda is, is it's a body of knowledge that's already there. It's not um, that, that it's, this knowledge is alive and it's a, it's a person um, and it can act towards us. So it's this, this idea of, of descending knowledge um, that, that, like Umarsh likes to say, knowledge is a person. Um, knowledge has, it has an agenda and it can act in relation to us. So Vasudev para Veda, Vasudev para Maka. So that's referring to sacrifice, right? Yes. So another name for Vasudev is Yagya. This Prabhupada mentions this, or sacrifice. Um, Yagyo Vais Vishnu. Another name for Vishnu is, is sacrifice. The Gita says Bhoktaram Yagya Tapasam Sarvaloka Maheshwaram Suhidam Sarvaputam, like that. The enjoyer of all the results of sacrifice, of all austerities. Um, this is this is Krishna. Um, and and when describing this verse in the Gita, um, I think it's this verse, Gurmaj really beautifully says, the absolute is eternally situated in acts of sacrifice. Um, so that's where one finds Krishna, especially in this age, we hear that the Yuga Dharma of this age um, is the Sankirtan Yagya. And that's one one finds Krishna there. One comes, the best way to come in contact with Vasudeva is through this sacrifice of chanting, Yagya Sankirtana Praya Yajantihi Sumedasa. So, sacrifice for this age is is chanting the holy name and there's nothing that's more krishna than his name vinatvam namanamino we hear um and then the, in relation to the demigods that we we're speaking of beforehand it's it's nice there's this really nice story of, of Bharat maharaj and how he's described at the very beginning when he's um, installed on the throne by his father um to rule over the entire world it gives a really nice idea of 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 how one sees the demigods as the limbs of the Lord, like I was mentioning before. And in relation to sacrifice, he was very learned um, and an affectionate king. And so he ruled in, in kind of the, in the Vedic context, that meant that, that he performed all these, all these different sacrifices in order to you know, provide, for, uh, provide facility and security for his kingdom. Um, so he, he performed these many different types of sacrifice um, and he, the verses in the Bhagavatam say that he performed them especially for the satisfaction of Vasudev. Um, and, and connecting back to that orientation regarding the demigods, um, Bharat Maharaj saw them all as different limbs of Vasudev's body. For instance, he saw Indra as the arms of Vasudev, Surya as, the, as his eyes. Um, and again, this is kind of a magical worldview where the, it, it's alive, it's a person. Um, um, uh, but Maharaj uh, Bharat um, considered that the oblations, you know, they were offered to the different demigods, but they were actually offered to the different limbs um, of Lord Vasudev. So th this idea of sacrifice permeates, um, um, you know, the, the, the sacred text. There's the famous Purusha Shukta, where, where the Purusha, the the primordial primordial person creates by by sacrificing his own limbs. Pretty cool. <laughs> so Vasudeva para yoga that the object of meditation is Vishnu. Um, 
at least according to the Bhagavatam and the Bhagavad Gita, you see in the teachings of Kapila Dave, he gives like pretty um, complex and detailed um, instructions on the execution of yoga, I guess kind of like Ashtanga yoga, but the object of meditation is very clearly Vishnu Vasudev. In the Gita too, um, this path is also described and Arjun asks about it because it's very complicated and requires a lot of effort on the part of, of the practitioner, um, very much an ascending path. And Arjun asks about it and asks about success because it's, it sounds like it would be very possible to fail. <laughs> and he says, yes, Krishna responds, yes, it's very difficult, but with practice and detachment, it's certainly possible. And even if one should be unsuccessful and fall away, um, you know, the, the results will still be there in terms of a favorable birth will be awaiting him. But ultimately, he ends the chapter um, after kind of answering uh, Arjuna's insecurity or doubt by saying, Yogi Nama Pisarvesham Matkatin Antar Atmana, Shadavan Bajate Yomam, Same Yukta Tamomataha. The one who in full faith worships him um, in devotion is most united with him, taking yoga to its highest reach ultimately meaning bhakti yoga. So it's made clear that the object of med meditation is Vasudeva or, or Vishnu or form of the Paramatma anyway, um, may be meditated on, um, but it's it's understood in, in the Bhagavatam or the Gita as just a, a facet of, of Vasudeva's personality um, relative to the path of yoga. Some schools have a different idea. I, I interacted a little bit with this, the Shivananda school of yoga which are really nice. So they give a really kind of like complete sense of what yoga is um, in terms of pranayama. And it wasn't just gymnastics. They had a sense of uh, the scripture and devotion and stuff. It's still a dvaitic, but um, they say, for example, that, that you can meditate on anything. It could be a flower, it could be a candle. Um, and that it's just the one, the point, one pointedness of mind or the samadhi that, or that uh, I guess it's referred chitta vritta nirodha, that is important. Um, and that I found that in their books, you know, they, they were saying you, just, you can choose whatever you want to meditate on. The point is, is to focus the mind, but Kapila Dev and the Bhagavatam take a different stance on that. So Vasudeva Parakriya, all action is dependent on him. So, uh, Again, with each of these lines, we can like kind of like they're very, I don't know if Upanishadic is the right word or what, but you can you can really go back to the um, you can really go back to the Gita and find uh, you know explanations of all these and this that all action is dependent on him. We find in the 18th chapter and the 14th and 15th verses where he's describing uh, the five factors of action. Uh, the body, the performer of action, the senses, the various types of endeavors, and ultimately God, Vasudev, is the ultimate factor in all action. We hear that not a blade of grass moves without, without the will of God. And it also means that in order to be successful in Varnashram or any of these actions, um, it, it ultimately needs to be centered in some way on Vasudev, some city or Haditoshana. So the next Vasudev Paragyana, he is supreme knowledge. Rajavidya, we hear in the Gita, the king of knowledge. Knowledge is dependent on him. He, it, it, this type of knowledge, he is this type of knowledge. It comes from up to down. Um, uh, the name of Krishna is the is non-different from Krishna, and it's the life of transcendental knowledge. We hear Mahaprabhu say he says, "Vidya Vadu Jivanam." 
Um, so again, the idea is that knowledge is a person alive with an agenda and it acts in relation to us. Vasudeva para tapa, all austerities are aimed at him. All, all austerities are dependent on him for success. So uh, we see the austerities of Devaki and Vasudeva in relation right, to Vasudeva, their son. So they, did, they performed austerities um, in relation to him, devotional austerities. Uh, so there is austerity in the life of the devotee, things like fast, fasting for Janmashtami Akadashi, um, taking on vows for Kartik, um, but, but really devotional austerities are twofold and they're found in the divisions of Sharanagati. So devotees really are more interested in Sharanagati surrender than they are in, um, than they are than, than they are in austerities. Gita of uh, Krishna of course sends the Gita Sarva Dharma Pratyaja Mamekam Sharanam Raja. So he's telling, he's saying, surrender to me. He's not saying do austerities towards me. But still within that surrender, we have the devotional austerities of Anukulyasya Samkalpa Pratikulyasya Varjanam. So accepting the favorable and rejecting the unfavorable. These are the austerities of the devotees. It can be a very pleasurable experience. It can also be a very unpleasurable experience. Sometimes uh, giving up the unfavorable things is very, very austere to do. But Krishna is a very soft person with a very soft heart. So these harsh, harsh austerities are not, not so much a, a part of bhakti. So Vasudeva paro dharmo. We already heard that earlier in the chapter, Savai Pumsam paro dharmo. So ultimately, the paro dharma is bhakti, to render loving service to him. Um, the actions of bhakti, like hearing and chanting, dedicated to him. Um, since God and love of God are one and the same. Vasudeva paro dharma, vasudeva paragati. So he's the supreme goal of life. The goal of prema and liberation are dependent on him for success, for results. And also, he is the panchama purusharta. So... In the beginning of the Chaitanya Charitamrita, we hear about the four goals of human life and how they're rejected as Kaitava Dharma. Um, uh, darkness, cheating, and um, but there's this Panchama Purusharta, the fifth goal of life, love of God directed to Vasudev. So that's the end of that verse. And just to end this section, I guess, or just uh, end by noting that the whole of the Bhagavatam begins with a statement of recognition and acknowledgement towards this Vasudev. Um, with the famous, you know, the famous uh, invocation, the famous first words of the Bhagavatam, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, and Janmadi Yasya Yataha, so from whom everything emanates, this Vasudev, from whom everything emanates. Um, and these verses that we just read, um, text 28 and 29, these are kind of an expansion, giving examples of, of how all, all these things within the scripture rest on him. Sutta Goswami is glorifying and acknowledging um, this, this uh, Bhagavate Vasudeva here. Um, and interestingly, it's worth pointing out that these verses are almost uh, repeated exactly in the second canto, uh, where Lord Brahma is explaining, explaining the, um, the Svarga, the primary creation, to Narada Muni, and he states practically the same thing, just changing the word Vasudev to Narayana. Um, and we get a glimpse into that act of cosmic creation in the, the next four verses, which we'll save for next time, um, uh, where it describes the, um, this primary creation, Svarga, where the Lord is uh, situated in his transcendental position, but, but creates the energies of cause and effect. 
and this is this is one of the ten ten subjects of the uh, of the Bhagavatam, of Svarga, the creation. So it tells us a little bit about uh, where we came from, a little bit about where we are, and of course later on in in the Bhagavatam it tells us where we want to go, um, and then the, it segues into the third chapter with uh, the Purusha avatars, gives a list of 22 very famous avatars, the pinnacle being of Krishna and Balaram. And uh, this uh, Krishna and Balaram, then we get, uh, who do we get after that? Kalki, Buddha and Kalki, I think, just to kind of end it off. And then avatari hi asankhya, that the, actually these av there's not 22 avatars, there's not 10 avatars, there are asankhya. A famous line that Gumaraj likes to quote often, and then ending with a te chamsa kalam. What well, doesn't end the chapter, but but uh, ends the pin, ends the ladder of of um, of avatars. So these are the forms of the Lord that are meant to be the object of bhakti. And I'll I'll end here because it's ten thirty. Does anybody have anything that they would like to share? Uh, I think. Uh, questions. If you're not on Facebook, we could take some questions, or if you have some questions that you'd like to share on the Tatvi Vivek, that's fine too. I think I left it so you can unmute yourselves if anybody has any comments. Okay. Nice speaking with everybody. Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai. Haribol. Haribol. Thank you. Thank you.